Water. Earth. Fire. Air. Long ago, the four nations lived together in harmony. Then, everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. Only the Avatar, master of all four elements, could stop them. But when the world needed him most, he vanished. A hundred years passed and my brother and I discovered the new Avatar, an airbender named Aang. And although his airbending skills are great, he has a lot to learn before he's ready to save anyone. But I believe Aang can save the world. Hello and welcome to Fundamentals, the podcast that explores pop culture one conversation at a time. I am your host, Harley. Joining me for this episode to discuss the incredible animated series Avatar The Last Airbender, he is a co-host of the List Women in Black Thunderpants podcast and writer Callum Cooper. Callum was kind enough to come onto the show and share his love of this remarkable show which first aired in February of 2005. It has since gone on to amass an adoring fan base that continues to grow day by day. And we get into the reasons as to why that is. Everything from the characters to the setting, the themes, and so much more is discussed in this wonderful episode. And yes, we do even talk about the M. Night Shyamalan movie. So without further ado, let's get to it. This is Avatar The Last Airbender with Callum Cooper. Hello, Callum, and welcome to the Fundamentals podcast. Uh, hello, Holly. Thank you so much for having me. It's so great to be on. Oh, my pleasure, my friend. So I'm really excited to get into this with you because you've brought a topic that has actually been suggested once or twice before, and I can see why, and that is Avatar The Last Airbender. So to kick us off, I'd love to know, what was your introduction to the topic? Uh, so my introduction to the topic was as a kid it's funny because a lot of people who will talk about their relationship with avatar last airbender will talk about how like it was their childhood show and stuff but that wasn't the case for me i like i you know when it played you know it certainly played on tv when i was a kid and by nickelodeon days of the mid 2000s and i saw adverts for it and stuff but i don't quite remember why i never really picked it up to be honest Mm. but but a few years later, around uh, 2013, 2014, around about then, I'd got into sort of the habit of watching films that folk were saying, oh, this is kind of bad, maybe check this out. And I don't know why I went into that trend, but one of the films included was the M. Night Shyamalan live-action version of this series, which uh-huh. at the time I'd heard really quite appalling things about, but... And I kind of wanted to check it out to see if it was as bad as people said it was. But I saw on the internet a lot of people saying, look, you probably should watch the show first if you're going to do that. So I figured, why not? Okay, I guess I'll just watch the show, see what I think of it. And I very, as a, even as a 17-year-old, I very quickly became obsessed with it after that. And to this day, I still think it's mm. my all-time favorite show. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Some high praise indeed. Yeah, I think we probably will get onto the the movie briefly at some point because yeah, I'm yeah. similar to yourself. I remember hearing about it and hearing how terrible an adaptation was, and 
watching some YouTube channels on it, you know, videos and going, oh, yeah, that doesn't look very good. But contrastly, like you said, everyone else saying, but the TV series is amazing and you should watch it. So, yeah, I, I totally agree. And I should say as well, I've started watching it ahead of this. I've a couple of episodes into the first season. And uh, nice. shout out to Jake, who's a big fan of the show and a good supporter. He was really excited to hear that I was doing this topic because, yeah, apparently it's got a huge following and everybody loves it. Yeah, and it's funny because its popularity only seems to have been increasing with time. Like, yeah. it was popular when it came out in Nickelodeon, mm. but then it came out on Netflix, I think around, I could be misremembering, but I think it was like 2015, 2016, and its popularity just spiked once again. Mm. So it, it's one of those shows that only seems to be getting more fans with time, from what I can understand. Yeah, I think that makes sense. There's a lot of stuff like that that kind of grows over time and sort of develops that cult following. And I guess because it's it's technically an anime, right? It sort of fits into that genre. So it's that kind of thing where once it finds a fan base, it will just keep growing. So I know we've talked about anime before and here, and that that's a, a genre of, I guess, television and cinema and so many other things that has deep-rooted fans. Yeah, I think whether or not it should be described as an anime is maybe a bit of a grey area. Okay. It's certainly, just because I know there are some mm. folk who are quite sort of, I suppose, gatekeepery about anime being a strictly Japanese thing. Right. And I I have some thoughts on that, but that's another topic for another time. But it's very, <laughs> it's very, very much very anime influenced, definitely. Yeah, that's the kind of vibe I got from it, just from the art style and you know, the kind of humour and things like that. It's sort of rang true of a lot of other stuff that i've seen <laughs> yeah no definitely and it's interesting it's very much a like even though and its particular animation style was very anime influenced it's got a lot of inspiration not just in kind of western media but also in like hong kong action movies and stuff as well it's quite the it's mm. quite the melting pot of influences if you strip it down enough yeah absolutely so i guess speaking of for anyone who's listening and perhaps isn't familiar with what avatar is what's the basic story then of, of the show um so the basic story is that similar to something like lord of the rings or star wars it takes place in this fictional universe and i i guess it's another or middle earth's probably not the way to describe it it's sort of like an ancient earth or something in which the world is divided into four different nations and because they're coordinated like that, they're all based around different elements like water, earth, fire, and air. And in this world, there are people who can, some people who can manipulate these elements like like telekinesis or something, but with the elements. And in this world, there is one individual called the Avatar who was sort of like a reincarnational peacekeeper, I suppose. Mm. And he's the only person, he's the only person in the world well, he or she, because as I say, they're reincarnation. So every generation or so, there's a person who can bend all four elements and their job is to kind of keep peace among the world and stuff. But as we know, you know, world politics are very messy and hectic. So that's easier said than done. Indeed. And and in the time when this, when this series is set, the entire planet is at war with one nation, the Fire Nation, and it's been going on for a hundred years. And so the premise is that this one boy, uh, who is the current incarnation of the Avatar, who is called the Last Airbender, because his his people, his nation of Airbenders, were wiped out very early into the war. So it's this up to this one kid, this twelve year old Airbender, to essentially 
I guess, reunify the planet a bit, basically. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a very good summary of, of that series, for sure. And I think, like you say, it does play into a lot of stuff that we are familiar with in those stories. It has a bit of a Joseph Campbell's hero's journey sprinkled in, you know, like you mentioned Star Wars, I think it's a good comparison of, yeah, like the the, the lone hero that has to basically stand up and save the world, the chosen one. It has a lot of those narratives built into it, but um, still, I think, really interesting to get into. Yeah, definitely. And it's funny because even though, like, its aesthetic and its look and even its genre, you could probably draw the most parallels to something like Lord of the Rings. Yeah. I think, na- narrative-wise, it's actually very similar to Star Wars. If mm. you take its three series and compare it to the original trilogy, you can actually see quite a lot of narrative parallels between them, which, right. again, again, like their genres are very different, but it's quite cool that you can see those inspirations like that. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So I think just breaking it down a little bit then, I mean, I, I said I'm currently into series one or, or book one, I think, as they uh, they go by, which I quite like. It's a nice touch. Um, yeah, I mean, talk to me about some of these main characters then. I mean, our, our main hero, our main protagonist is Aang, the, the last airbender. Yeah, that's right. So it's interesting because quite a few characters do get added on as mm. the as the story progresses. But we'll begin with, I guess, just a very short summary. The characters who are introduced in like the first couple of episodes, I think. Mm. So you have Ang, who is you know, as the title says, the last Airbender. <clears throat> Excuse me. He is this twelve-year-old uh, air Airbender, this Air Monk, as they say, because Airbenders are a nation of nomads they travel the world they're more spiritual than other people on the planet so he is this young 12 year old kid who learned quite early on into his life that he was the avatar but because he's a kid who's quite sort of fun eccentric and free-spirited he's quite intimidated at the thought that he is effectively a walking deity in this world mm. and so and so he runs away. He he thinks, I'm going to get burdened by this incredible power that I never asked for. And so he runs away and ends up, yeah, I guess not to spoil it too much for people who haven't seen it, he effectively ends up frozen in time, wakes up a hundred years later, and suddenly the entire world's in chaos. This is war that's been going on. Mm. And so for him, he has to, I suppose his journey is to not only master the four elements, as is his his role as the Avatar, but also to reconcile the fact that he is this important figure and, okay, he never asked for any of this power, but he learns, he has to accept that that's who he is and that's what his role in the world is. Yeah, so yeah, taking the, taking the answer, well, no, what's it? Answering the call, that's what I'm looking for. Yeah, answering the call is, is very much his arc, I suppose, as, as the hero's journey goes. Yeah, certainly. And the the first few episodes introduces him to because I suppose mm. with, you know with you can't have a photo without a Sam, can't you? And so, <laughs> and in you know in this particular show, he's introduced by the he meets these this brother and sister from the Southern Water Tribe, who which is basically the South Pole of this world. You have the sister Katara, who's a fourteen year old waterbender. So the only waterbender in the in the South Pole, where which is the same thing as an airbender, only she can bend water rather than air, as the name implies. Yeah. But yeah, so and then her brother Sokka, who's very who's a non-bender, as they say, someone who can't bend any element. Like he as he would describe it in a later episode, he's just regular, I suppose. But I 
Anyway, I, I disagree with that sentiment because he's very much... I would say the closest thing to comic relief that the show has. He's a very funny character. And even though he is kind mm. of... I suppose he's the unofficial leader of the group, despite the airbender being, you know, basically a god. But he is... <laughs> He is the he's the older one who comes up with the plans. He's a bit eccentric, but yeah, no, he's mm. probably one of my favorite characters. He's just so much fun. Yeah, I could see that. I, I quite like the dynamic that you sort of immediately get with the main three. I think it's it's quite a lot of fun um, just watching them all bounce off of each other. And as you say, especially considering that Ang is sort of meant to be this wise deity you know this like he's been a he's been he's technically over 100 years old but really he's like you say frozen in time so he's just a kid and that sort of energy yeah, no, that he brings to it it's just a lot of fun to watch and it's a nice juxtaposition that you have somebody who essentially has this incredible power but he is just a little kid you know he's a 12 year old who understands the weight of his situation but you know doesn't know where to start with it and Guitar and soccer are a little older, they're 14 and 15 respectively, but they're still these quite young these quite young souls in a world that they've well I suppose in contrast to Ang, they've grown up in a war-torn world from the start. But even they are a little lost in this world, and as they go out to find masters to teach Ang all the elements, they're still navigating this world that they still don't fully understand at the same time. Yeah, well, yeah, that's it. Because I think uh, you have to correct me where I'm wrong here. Again, I've only just watched a couple, but the um, when he meets them, they're kind of not displaced, but they're very much being s- suppressed by the Fire Nation, aren't they? Like they're kind of their tribe, sort of on the brink of war, and they really don't want it. Like you say, they've kind of retreated as far as they can, so they're they're sort of in an, in a place where they're kind of backed up against the wall, and they haven't really practiced any of their techniques any water bending or anything because they just don't want any trouble so yeah and in the case of guitar as well she's the only water bender in her entire tribe so right. she hasn't had and she hasn't had anyone to teach her at that point so mm. she has as much to gain from traveling with ang as he does quite frankly yeah absolutely yeah there's this kind of that almost like a kindred spirit with them for sort of as soon as they meet yeah, pretty much, because even though Sokka is quite distrustful of Aang at first, because, you know, as far as they're concerned, airbenders are extinct, so one now suddenly shows up out of the blue, they don't know what to make of it, mm. but, yeah, no, it's an interesting dynamic where they're all very much friends, but after a while, it does feel like quite a close family unit in some ways as well. Yeah, I think so, and it sort of has that road trip feel to it, doesn't it? Like you say, um, again, just thinking of Star Wars, thinking of Lord of the Rings, all these other stories that are told, it's usually that sort of the family that you find on the journey and it sort of has that feel to it. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good way of summarizing it. And particularly as each episode goes along with each season you get, or book, I should say, mm. with each book, that that only expands. Right, yeah, exactly. And again, I've, I'm just getting into it at the minute, so I'm kind of curious to see what kind of other characters I'm going to meet along the way. <laughs> I but I think there is one more character I want to oh, mention that's do. quite important to us as well, and you'll you'll know you've been introduced to him at this point as well. But he is a character called Zuko, yes. who I imagine you've probably heard of even before you started watching the show because mm. he's most he's most people's favorite character, and mm. you know, to sounds like a broken record. He's mine as well. Okay, what exactly uh, draws you to him? 
Um, so it's interesting when we're intro. This might be mild spoiler territory, oh, I suppose, but uh, but when we're introduced to Zuko, he is the prince of the Fire Nation, yeah. which would suggest you know he's got this prestige and I, I'm about to say honor. That's quite a funny reference, right. but. But it, but at the, you know it would suggest that he's somebody with tons and tons of power similar to Aang. Yeah. But he's but prior to the start of the show, he was banished by his own father, and so he's on this journey as well, trying to, as he says over and over again, reclaim his honor, or yeah. I need to find regain my honor, is what he says. Yeah, yeah. And so, kind of similar to Aang, so- Katara, and Sokka as well, he's also kind of a fish out of water as well. Mm. And so his story, like, it's very much uh, very much an arc that can be defined by growth, where he starts out the show thinking that he needs something, in this case, the on, you know, regaining the honor of his father and his rightful place as the heir to the entire Fire Nation. But his journey is very much about self-discovery and redemption and finding his, making his own path that's not defined by what came before him. It's a really fascinating journey, and... You know, it's interesting for a, a show that when in the first few episodes and when it was initially marketed looks like a friendly, harmless, colorful Nickelodeon show. There's some really great nuances in the way that Zuko was portrayed in this show. Right. Okay. I'm interested to see where his story goes. Yeah. Like you said, it's 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 quite curious. Even the first few episodes, it's very much laid out that, like you said, he's he's got a bit, bit of a hill to climb to prove himself to people that maybe are not worth trying to prove themselves to. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> yeah. I, it's, it's, as I say, it's very much about self-discovery. Yeah. And one, uh, one of my favorite episodes of the show was about midway through book one, mm. which is, it's called The Storm. And it's, this, it's just this, this episode that, where all the characters are taking shelter from a storm. But in the process of them taking shelter, we learn about not just Aang's backstory, but Zuko's as well. And we find that even though they are technically the protagonist and antagonist, they actually have a lot more in common. There's more that, you know, there's more that unites them than divides them, even if they don't know it yet. Right. Okay. Fascinating. Yeah, I think that's really cool. Awesome. I look forward to seeing that. I thought it'd be quite close to that very soon. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's kind of insane how popular Zuko is among, among people who consume the show quite regularly, mm. but it's it's understandable. It's a fantastically written character. Yeah, right. And I mean, who doesn't love a good villain initially, right? <laughs> I, precisely. It's just, oh, I, I could go on and on about Zuko. I just love him. Yeah. No, I find that really cool. I, I'm looking, for, like I said, looking forward to seeing where he goes and sort of what happens from there. But it is interesting to me as well, like the Fire Nation as a whole are the ones that are starting the war and sort of are being all about basically consuming everything. You know, it's kind of a, an apt metaphor almost for fire. Like, you know, it's just like that endless hunger and destruction. Yeah, no, it definitely has that going for it, which is probably why they picked that of the four to be like, I guess, the warmonger in the yeah. show. Because, you know, saying everything changed when the Air Nation attacked doesn't sound quite as deadly, no. does it, I suppose? <laughs> no. <laughs> but, but, at the, but at the same time, something I do really love about the show as well was that it's not black and white. It's not a binary approach to warfare. Okay. Like even though the even though the first few episodes, and you could argue perhaps the first book, very much kind of paints the Fire Nation as pretty clearly the bad guys. And don't get me wrong, they are the bad guys in this show. 
But later on, the further down the show we get, it talks a lot more about, I guess, the complex nuances that come with warfare. Like, in the minds of the Fire Nation, they're just trying to share their culture with the rest of the world and stuff. But the rest of the world says, well, no, you're literally coming in trying to colonize the rest of us. Like, what do you think you're doing? It's got that sort of... Like, it's not so complex that people can't follow it anymore, mm. but... It, but it's interesting to see you get you get a lot more discussion about both sides and where folk are coming from, and so you can understand you can understand it even if you don't agree with it. Mm. That's really interesting. Yeah, I, it's funny. There's something I've picked up early on watching just the couple. Is that yeah? That, that's clearly something they're thinking about the writers that is of the show. Even though this is a kids show, like you said, there's clearly a lot of more interesting, subtle, nuanced themes, as you say, going in. I mean. One that kind of jumped out to me that I thought was was very straightforward, but a good lesson for kids was, um, I think it's when I've just pulled up the character list because I'm terrible. Yeah, that's <laughs> um, okay. I got yeah, it's, it's when Soka is sort of basically being quite misogynistic, and like, yeah. um, and they they come to this tribe and he's just banging on about basically guys being better than girls. It's a thing is age old. Uh, thing we're still dealing with and um yeah he basically meets this tribe of fierce warriors one of them headed by a character called suki and he sort of gets a, a real lesson in humility and, and recognizing the need for equality and i thought it was such a simple way of doing it in the episode that was really effective and yeah just kind of made me sit up and go oh okay they're putting some really interesting morals and themes for kids in this show that's cool yeah, no, that's one of my favourite things about it and what, I guess, drew me to it as a teenager and still continues to draw me to it even now is that, okay, that, you know, they're not seminars on the subject. Right. You know, you could argue it's not, it's, you could argue it's not even really groundbreaking what they do with it, but the fact that they acknowledge these things and yeah. say, no, this is a problem and this is, you know, this is what we think you should learn from it. The fact that it's willing to do that when, other shows would probably just pass it off as a joke that he got beaten by a girl, but they right. want to really, they want to really focus in on the detail and have you know have something of a conversation about it. That it's not just that isolated to that episode; it's all throughout the show. They do little lessons like that. Yeah, are there any that kind of stand out to you? Um, off the top of my head, perhaps is one. I might need a minute to think about. Cool. Actually, there's one that. It's one that comes to mind towards the end of book one, which is when Aang goes back to one of the air temples and he finds that it's been overtaken by refugees who have fled from the Fire Nation, fled from the destruction of the war, and have made this once really cultural historical site into their new home. And it's an interesting conversation. You know, Aang initially is quite sort of upset and distraught over this because he's lost his entire people. And for him, this is that this is people coming in and essentially wrecking his heritage and wrecking historical significance. But at the same mm. time, these are people who are fleeing from war, who have lost everything. They're going to make the most of whatever they find. Yeah. And so it's this in, so it's this interesting kind of small journey for Ang to kind of reconcile his own attachments to his culture and his past with the needs of the now, and it does it. Again, not essentially groundbreaking or anything, but the fact that it's willing to do that is really fascinating and really mature of the show. Yeah, that is actually, like you say, that's quite a deep theme to throw in for for a kids show. Um, I think that's that's got to play into why people love this so much, right? 
Yeah, like it's got all these hard hitting surprise. Like even though it is embracing its identity as a Nickelodeon show, it has daft jokes, it has eccentric moments, mm. but it also, <clears throat> but it also has these moments of surprising maturity that you wouldn't expect from a show of its caliber. It's got a really good balance between the two. Right. Okay. I like that. Um, you've just reminded me. Jake did ask me to talk about one particular episode. I'm struggling to remember the name of it. Sorry, buddy. Um, <laughs> That's okay. I think it's one he said, well, it's, it's uh, one part of the episode is something to do with a guy sending his son off to war. Does that ring a bell? I think so. I think it might. Oh, you might be talking about Zuko alone, I think. This seems familiar. Yes, that might be it. I've just, I've even pulled up a list of the episodes just to have a look. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, there's a, I'll be honest, there's a couple of episodes where people go off to war, but mm. that's the one, that, the first one that's coming to mind for yeah, me. Yeah, he said it was just one that was sort of, he found it really moving because it was just something where it took a moment to like meditate on what it meant for this family and and everything. And like you say, it, it could be something that could be easily overlooked of just, oh, characters are at war in this show, who cares? But it, it sort of is a, apparently a brief moment in an episode where it just kind of really makes you sit in it and realise, like, the weight of something like that. Oh, wait, I think I know which moment it is. It's a, it's a known favourite from people watching mm-hmm. the show, but it's from, it's from a standalone episode called The Tales of Bar Sing Say, where different characters are all in the same city. Right. And it's just small mini-adventures for all of them. And one of them, uh, Zuko's uncle called Iroh, you know, he is this really bubbly, fun-loving figure who just loves... He just wants to drink tea and watch people get along with each other. Mm-hmm. He's so lovable. But he also has such melancholy to his character as well because he was previously a warmonger like a lot of people in the Fire Nation. But then he lost his son to a battle. And since then, he sort of said, no, I don't want anything to do with warfare like this anymore. Yeah. And it's a small moment where... I think that's the one. He's, yeah. Yeah. It's a small moment where he celebrates his son's birthday on, mm-hmm. you know, even though he's he passed away about five years ago, yeah. and it's, oh, it's such a poignant moment. It's so sad. Yeah, that is exactly the one. Um, so yeah, we got there in the end, Jake. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's even got its own page. I'm just scrolling through the Wikipedia, uh, which I know isn't always 100% accurate, but it's what I have to go off. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's what I'm reading here. It's. I love that. I love that. How cool is that to make it like a mini sort of anthology episode about all these different people and, and one of them could focus on grief. That's incredible. Yeah, and there's an extra layer of, I guess, poignancy to that particular short because mm. the actor, the voice actor behind Iroh, uh, well, I hope I'm getting this right, but it's a well-known Japanese actor called Marco. Yes. He, sat, he sadly passed away during the development of book two. Oh. And so, and so it's this really poignant, heartwarming moment with this character. And even at the end of the short, they dedicate it to Marco. So it's got that extra real life world of poignancy to it as well. That's amazing. I absolutely love that. That's so cool. Again, I'm, I'm really just in awe of, of stuff, of shows that go to that deeper level. Um, yeah. Wow. <laughs> I, I, especially because like, I just say, I could, I don't want to, I guess be condescending to Nickelodeon right. shows, but like, but people, you know, people wouldn't blame them if they just kind of stuck to doing their cutesy thing. They didn't yeah. have to go the extra mile, but the fact that they did, I think, is what has created so much resonance for this particular right. show. I mean, 
let's be honest, we're not going to get something like that from SpongeBob SquarePants, are we? You know, all due respect. <laughs> I mean, you, you never, never know. know. I've not watched it, not watched it in a while. You never know. But... <laughs> yeah, if I'm wrong, then please let me know, people listening. I would that would be really funny. <laughs> <laughs> but, but this is cool so so as the series progresses let's say three three books uh as the series yeah. goes so it's water earth and then fire is the last one so what's the kind of common themes or what what is it what is each sort of book getting at is it purely just the element um on a surface level and a narrative level it is about sort of mastering all four elements because when Aang is first introduced, he, he, you know, he's basically a master of airbending, even at 12, yeah. and he even has the honorary rite of passage to that, which is his arrow tattoos all over his body. So, like, it's a very distinct visual for this character. He's a bald 12-year-old with an arrow, an arrow tattooed on his yeah. head, you know, <laughs> very, very visually distinctive. So, yes, very. Yeah, he's... So he's already mastered one element by the time the show starts, and it's him learning the rest. Okay. But it's also but it's also about him learning to balance his own personal needs and his own personal wants with, again, a role that he didn't ask for, but one that he knows he has to embrace for the better of the people around him. Right. Okay. So that's sort of again that the hero's journey kind of thing, right? Yeah. Accepting the call is kind of weaved into all three, I guess. Yeah, no, it's a very, I would say it's a very good example of a hero's journey archetype, but the fact that, as we were talking about just there, the fact that they're able to sprinkle it with a lot more nuances than your typical, Mm. and your typical hero's journey does give it that much more distinction as well. Brilliant. Okay. So I'm, I'm, yeah, that's really cool. So I'm currently in water right now. I've got a couple more to go. I just noticed they seem to be quite close together as well, this run. It's basically 2005 to 2008 is when it sort of wraps up uh yeah when they initially pitched the show the creators uh michael uh michael Dimontino and brian can i can't pronounce his surname i'm so sorry but <laughs> can, uh Tiso, i want to say when they pitched the show they knew it was going to be a uh, free books and that's it they knew right if they wanted they knew if they wanted to tell the story they had to be concise and to the point with it so yeah, it is very close together. It was 2005, 2006, half of book three in 2007 and the other half in 2008. They were very, very concise with the way they told the story. Mm, I love that. I love a good uh, series just in general that has a plan. You know, they have a cutoff point rather than just keep going and going and going for the sake of it. Yeah, no, I I could be just making this up in my head, but I'm pretty sure I heard it from like a documentary of theirs or something. Right. But and. It, you know, when they had to pitch it to Nickelodeon, they had to come up with like an initial 12 episode pitch or something. And they did that. And I think they spent something like 20 minutes, 30 minutes, maybe even as long as an hour explaining everything to the Nickelodeon CEO. And when he was finally able to get a word and he said, okay, guys, stop, I'm sold. (laughs) (laughs) That's incredible. I absolutely love that. You know, I, I really hope that's true. I remember hearing it somewhere, but I again, I, maybe I'm just making that up, but I really do hope that's true. I hope so too, because, yeah, you love to hear it. You love to hear someone just being really passionate and just overwhelming an executive to basically forcing them, <laughs> let them do it. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like their plan of, I guess, verbal diarrhea really worked in their favour. 
<laughs> yeah, just overload them. That's brilliant. So yeah, I guess from there then, yeah. So talk about some of the other characters then. Are there any other particular standouts to you? Um, so this character is not introduced until roundabout book two, but, you know, one of the catches to Aang traveling the world or going on this road trip is that he has to find people who can teach him all four elements because he had his people to teach him airbending, but they're all gone now and he needs to find people who are masters in all the other elements to teach him. And so in book two, he's introduced to this one character called Toph, who is a a pun on tough, but right. it's uh, but yeah, that's another fan favorite, kind of up there with Zuko. She's uh, you know, it's quite funny. She is a blind twelve-year-old girl who is tougher than all these really buff, muscular parodies, right. and and she, but quite in contrast to Ang, rather than someone who's, I guess, playful and happy-go-lucky, she's quite sort of. I suppose the word is she's very much determined to carry her own weight, and she's sarcastic, but to the point where it's almost to hide deeper insecurities. Mm. And so she's very much an antithesis to Ang in many ways, but but because of that, she's also quite brutally tough in her methods of training him when it comes to earthbending in particular. So she's got because she's blind, she has all these really creative ways of, I guess, engaging with her element wow. and also interesting ways of teaching Aang as well. And it, it just makes for some really some really cool fight scenes, some really interesting moments, and even one particular moment that I won't give away where she basically invents a new style of bending. That's just how cool she is. Wow, that's awesome. And you said she's blind as well, the character. Yeah. Hi. So when, they, when the showrunners initially conceived this character, it was meant to be a sort of buff 16-year-old, mm. but then one of them, I think, suggested, well, wouldn't it be funny if it was just like a blind 12-year-old girl? And then what started off as as a joke very quickly caught on mm. and made it into the show. Wow. Okay. Well, I think it certainly subverts your expectations, and that's kind of cool and introduces a bit of diversity. Aye, for sure. And I believe it's uh, Brian who initially was unsure of the idea, mm. but then... Fast forward three years when they're writing it, and now she's his personal favorite character, which tells you quite a lot, I feel. There you go. Awesome. Um, I'm just having a little look through here as well. I've just realized there's a really solid voice cast for quite a lot of this as well. Oh, yeah. No, it's surprising. Not e Even just among the main cast as well, mm. it's surprising how many guest guest voices there are as well yeah i mean i've just ones that leap out to me are like mark hamill and jason jason isaacs you know like these really powerful presence and excellent voice actors in their own right yeah mark hamill actually voices uh the fire lord the uh, zuko's father yeah. who's the big the big bad of the entire show mm. but if you, and he's it's a really great uh piece of voice acting i agree mark hamill is a phenomenal talent when it comes to voice acting but he very much channels his animated series Batman Joker voice into this role. Right. I love that. Uh, yeah, J.K. Simmons, Mindy Sterling. I'm just having a scroll through here. Yeah, no, that's just, that's awesome. That's absolutely awesome. You've got to love to see it. Uh, so how do you feel it, it kind of sticks the landing then in terms of, na uh, I guess, navigating a three-season arc? Because that can be quite difficult for a lot of shows, right? It is quite difficult, yeah, and particularly where where your setup is someone learning three different elements, you know, that can 
quite quickly become quite formulaic. Right. But the fact that they're also journeying across this world, like, you know, you could say that's one that's good for sort of world building if that's your kind of thing. But at the same time as well, it gives different, it means they can go to different areas, meet different people, learn different experiences. And it's the fact that they're traveling from place to place and dealing with, with, with sometimes with some really complex dilemmas that don't always have a right or wrong answer is what keeps it so refreshing. And don't get me wrong, there's plenty of episodes as well where a lot of it is purely humor, you know, like, for example, in one episode in book two, they go to this village and they say, oh, look, they're having a festival for the Avatar. This is great. They love me. But it turns out they hate the Avatar for a particular right. reason. <laughs> and it's an, it's an extremely petty reason. That's hilarious to me as well. Right. But, well, I mean, it's not that petty. That grudge is petty. But the reasoning is, is maybe it's understandable if you see it from their point of view. Okay. But, but it's the fact they can have one episode where, you know, these sort of, you can have all these parodies and this really quite, hilarious scenario where the characters just want to get the hell out of there as quickly as possible. Mm. But then, say, two episodes later, you have a Zuko standalone episode that deals with his backstory and his quite dysfunctional family and how he ended up the way he is. As I say, that balance between lighthearted and quite heavy, and before, like, before you even realise what it's doing, it just has these really... I mean, I hesitate to say dark, but mm. quite quite mature angles on things definitely mm. yeah for sure i mean again i guess considering the subject matter and you know, the fact that it's got war in the background of of all of it it, it makes sense that yeah you're gonna have those more mature moments yeah and it just reminds me you asked me a bit earlier are there any other characters mm. that stand out it just rem reminds me of another one who's also introduced in book two or technically the end credits of book one but it's uh, Zuko's sister uh, called Azula, voiced oh. by the gr uh, the great Grey Delizel, who's an amazing voice actor as well. Ah. Okay, cool, yeah, cool, and, cool. And yeah, where Zuko is maybe a bit sort of conflicted and lost when it comes to his identity around the Fire Nation, Azula is pretty much as close to as certain as what she wants as possible. She is... I would say she's maybe the closest thing to this show's Joker or something in that. Mm -hmm. You know, she's, you know, I mean, when to, to refer to her as a monster is maybe taking away some of the, is maybe putting it in a very black and white way, but she's very much a villain's villain, I would say. She's got the suave, she's got the sarcasm, she's got the voice, she's got the uh, physical prowess and the mental manipulation of other characters. She's a fantastic villain. Right. Okay. That's really cool. I mean, I just had a quick look at her uh, her IMDb as well. And yeah, awesome. <laughs> really great. That's a great get for that for that kind of character. You definitely want someone that can that can bring that kind of presence and humor, I think. And yeah, just go and look it up, people at home, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah, no, great Deliza is like I probably one of the most prolific voice actors I could think mm. of off the top of my head and she's one of the best voice actors in this entire show which is saying a lot because there's so many great voice actors in it already yeah no there are there really are as you say there's quite a lot of characters and and people there that are just absolutely fantastic so all right cool i like this so you've got all this stuff going on you've got the family dynamic with the villains it's oh i love this i'm loving it the more i hear about it and as i say i have started watching it and 
I do think it's really cool already. Um, yeah, no, uh, that's what I'm loving to hear as well, especially because <laughs> for me personally too, the first chunk of episodes of the show, are they are good. Mm. They're really good. They're really engaging, really fun. But it's around, as I say, the Storm episode onwards. I think that's when it re- the show really sinks its teeth into you and you guys actually know this is this is a bit more mature, a bit more kind of nuanced than it initially seems. Mm. And from there, it just, you know, the level of quality just gets bigger and bigger and bigger from there on. Awesome. Do you think it works really well on the rewatch then? Oh, yeah, I've... <laughs> this is quite sad to admit. No. I've probably rewatched it a good dozen times or something. And for me, for me, it really is one of those shows that just gets better with every rewatch. That's oh, what I love to hear. That's brilliant. Yeah, no, it's maybe it's just my my addictiveness kicking in in regards to the show, but but yeah, like even if you even if you go watching it again, knowing all these small nuances or where the story is gonna go, that sort of thing, you can look to how it presents its story visually or how the characters emote, and you can connect the dots to what's coming up later. Essentially, it's and you can see little small nuances between characters, different dynamics where they're eventually going to go, that sort of thing. It's just, mm. oh, I love it. I love it if you couldn't tell. <laughs> oh, but that's great. And uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of shows that you can get that out of and rewatches, and you can see, like you say, the seeds being planted for certain characters and moments later on. It's it's a sign of really good writing. Yeah, no, it's... And also incredibly consistent writing as well. Yeah. Like the quality. It's got like a level of quality and it maintains it pretty much from start to finish. Right. Okay. So it never has a sort of wavering moment then. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are like a couple episodes that, that I don't like as much as the others, but even then, but even then they've got something to offer, be it a certain level of comedy or certain interesting interpretation of things. You know, there's no, even though there are some episodes I would say are weaker than others, I wouldn't say there's a bad episode at all. Well, that's very high praise, I'd say, indeed. I mean, even just here, I've had a quick look. The um, IMDb rating's quite high. It's sort of 9.3 and 100% in Rotten Tomatoes. That's almost never happens. Yeah, I think at one point, I don't know if it's uh, still the same now, I think at one point it was like number 15 on like IMDb's top rated shows or something like that, which is insane wow. because the you know the, the top the I guess top five or so are just sort of what you'd expect, like Game of Thrones, Sopranos, Breaking Bad, those sort of stuff. Sure. So to see it basically playing in the same ballpark as shows like that is actually quite insane, I feel. Yeah. What do you think it is about the show as a whole then that puts it up in that category for a lot of people? I think it's because it is a really good blend of fun animation, creative action, but also really interesting, complex, nuanced philosophy, the kind that both kids and adults alike can really engage with and really understand. I feel it's got that good hybridization between a lot of different qualities that makes it... Okay, yeah, that means it's got a lot of influences, but it also means it's quite unique in its own way, too. Right, okay. Interesting, interesting. Okay. Yeah, I, I can see that sort of blend really lending itself to that. And as you've said, I suppose if, you know, it's, it's got a really solid run of episodes as well, and it's a great on a rewatch, I think that must definitely help push it up into the lists. 
I for sure. And I think as we've sort of mentioned a couple of times as well, I think the fact that when when you strip all this flashiness down to its bones, mm. it is a, a classic well-told hero's journey story. Mm. And, you know, if Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and others are anything to go by, people love a good hero's journey story, don't they? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the characters, that sort of band of heroes and misfits that you get that you just kind of fall in love with. Yeah, I could see see why that would have such a broad appeal. I know. I think that's it's that sort of simplicity plus that high that stylish hybridization. I think is maybe what makes it. I would say so beloved for so many people. Even those who you'd think are outside of its target demographic. Yeah. I mean, talk to you a bit more about the animation style then as well, then, because I I have to say I'm really impressed with what I've seen so far. I think it's. I had uh, the pleasure of um, a couple of guests talking about different types of animation over the years in this show and it's one of those it's a i think sometimes an underappreciated art form so i feel like it's important to acknowledge it oh yeah for sure animation is so underappreciated and particularly with what we've been seeing on the news recently people or i guess even with just the vfx department as well people people's crunch times on it like people Mm don't appreciate just how much effort it takes to make a good animation no absolutely and i mean here we're talking about sort of 2D, you know, hand-drawn stuff. It takes a lot of time and, and skill. Yeah, and this particular animation, if I've got my facts correct, it was created in South Korea, which is why you see a lot of oh. sort of... Uh, it's why you see a lot of Korean contributors to the show. Like, I think a lot of animated shows nowadays do this. They, I suppose... I forget what the word is, but they offshore... That's it. They offshore their... Yeah their teams to other companies who are going to... And, you know, there's maybe some ethical questions about that practice, but, you know, it's got, you know, South Korean animators working on a show that has a lot of Eastern Asian influences on it. And so that probably explains why some people want to call it an anime in some ways, I feel. Yeah, that would make a lot of sense, actually. Now that you say that. Yeah, that's... And I feel I'm very much anti-gatekeeper here you know it's (laughs) like what you like and yeah even though you could say oh it's an american made as you said it's well it's technically drawn within an an asian country and you know and like you say it's very much rooted in those influences and those styles it's that's that much is very evident when you start watching it yeah like one of my one another show that i really love is rooster teeth's ruby and that also has a lot of debates on whether it's technically an anime or not and like it's all made it's all made in america yes but like avatar Mm -hmm. has a lot of anime influences behind it so it just it opens up this whole can of worms that i just find a bit exhausting to be honest i couldn't agree more yeah i just think like what you like and at the end of the day this show is clearly being respectful to all of those influences as well you know it's not just doing it as a cheap gimmick or making fun of of the style Oh, precisely. Like right down, I would say to the way they animate the action, because yeah. each bend, each bending style, whether it's air or water or fire or whatever, it's not just people doing quick jabs and stuff. They actually all are based on actual East Asian martial arts, and they incorporate those movements into the show. Wow. Okay. So did they bring people on board then to sort of get their advice on it? Yeah, I don't quite remember how they did it because I don't think motion capture was really a thing back then. Mm. But they did, they did have people consulting them on different martial arts and how that would, how that would look aesthetically and how they could incorporate 
I guess how they could trans transport that into the show's look. Wow. See, I think that's really cool. That's a that's a, a lovely little layer to add in. And I'm guessing then with with each sort of element, there'll be different styles that they would have, you know, uh, looked to for for inspiration. Yeah, I've got a few notes down here. And I've, if I've got this right, I'm probably not pronouncing any of these correctly. <laughs> but, you're in good company here, don't worry. <laughs> but uh, from what from what I found, air is based on uh, Bagoa, I want to say. Again, could be wrong. Water, Tai Chi, Earth, Hungar, and Fire, a martial art called Northern Shaolin. Wow. Okay. Cool. Interesting, interesting. If anyone's listening and they're into their martial arts, like Bill means reach out to us and, and let us know, yeah, what that kind of means and what the correct uh, pronunciations are. That's totally fine because <laughs> I get stuff wrong like that all the time. But yeah, I love that. I love that. Again, that feels like an extra layer of detail that you could see some shows maybe skipping out on that and just saying, I'll just have them do Kung Fu and not really think about it. Yeah, precisely. And it's an extra layer of creativity, not just from bringing in these real world influences, but also using that to kind of influence what each element can do. Right. Like, for example, I, there's one amazing episode in uh, book three where Katara finds out just how far reaching her waterbending can be. And, and I say that there's really dark implications in that, as oh. I'm sure you'll see when you get to it. Okay. But but I guess as a more tame example, I suppose, for example, there's water in the air. And so if you focus hard enough, you can actually draw water from the air and use that as a source of bending. Stuff like that, for example. Wow. Interesting. That's really cool. Yeah, I, I kind of love that. I, I'm a big fan of sort of superhero stuff anyway. So I feel like this kind of taps into that a little bit and... Yeah, I love that, like drilling into the concept of, of an ability and like, you know, let's see how far you can really take this. Yeah, and particularly in sort of Avatar's sequel show, The Legend of Korra, they mm -hmm. do that a bit more with some of the other elements. And again, they, they, they go down some very dark territory is what I was saying regarding that. <laughs> right, okay. Okay. Yeah, talk to me a bit more about this spin-off thing because I have heard of it. Uh, I was going to pull some up, up about that as well. Okay. Yes. So there's actually quite a few uh, spin-off media regarding Avatar, but the most uh, the most well recognized one, and I would say probably the most popular one, is the sequel series, The Legend of Korra, mm -hmm. which is a very similar setup. It's just the next Avatar in the reincarnational cycle. So the you know, last Airbender, it's Aang, who's an Airbender. Once he passes away, the Avatar becomes the next person in that cycle, and so. The Legend of Korra is about the waterbending avatar called Korra. Right. Okay. And I've got here four seasons they made. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting. Korra had a bit more of a messier production than the original Avatar, but huh. by no fault of the, by no fault of the showrunners at all. Hmm. From what I understand, Nickelodeon uh, Nickelodeon kind of messed them about a wee bit when they were making it, so they had to sort of maybe throw in plot lines a little earlier than they would have wanted, maybe rush some things, take some things out, that sort of thing. Right. But the fact that the, but the fact that the show is still really solid despite that says a lot to its quality, I feel. Yeah. Yeah, totally, man. I mean follow up series are always difficult, aren't they? It's it's rare that anything will always live up to what come came before. So if it even gets close, fair play. 
Yeah, and it's funny because there, even though Korra is quite a popular show similar to Avatar, it definitely it definitely has its detractors. And, mm. you know, some, some of it I kind of understand, but a lot of it, I feel, is sort of typically what you see on the internet sometimes, is that people taking a previous show or a previous franchise... Mm-hmm. Putting it, putting it on a pedestal, right. and not be, and not being able to look past any kind of changes or interpretations of it. Like, for example, in Legend of Korra, they talk about this one moment of Aang with his three kids, and how we spent a lot of time with his son Tenzin, who's voiced by J.K. Simmons, who is also an Airbender, the only one of his children to be an Airbender, and so people kind of got their pitchforks out at the idea that Aang wasn't this perfect father but it's like well mm. no he was never it's like no he was never a perfect character and this is the one kid of his who inherited his bending style the only other person on the planet who ha- is able to do this so okay yeah it doesn't sit okay so, you know of course he would go after he would spend a bit more time with the only other airbender in the world apart from him you know it's right. as I, as i say it just felt like people really just putting that character on the pedestal when treating him as if he was some untouchable perfection when he was always a flawed character, even in his own show. Mm. That's interesting, yeah. I, we do get that a lot on this uh, show of certain fans that get, I think, a little too enthusiastic, shall we say, about what they're into <laughs> to the point where, like you say, they want to keep it a certain way and protect it, and you're like, God, that's not the point especially when you're dealing with something like a, a show, right? And it's it's art, it's characters are, like you say, flawed. And that's kind of more interesting to watch as well, let's be honest, than having someone who's just perfect and great at everything all the time. Well, yeah, because I... I mean, it's, it's an age-old saying that likability is no guarantee of audience engagement. If you have a True. character who's just sort of a bland goody-goody, that that's, that's not really a character, that's an archetype, where someone yeah. who is, ge- is generally a protagonist is generally has good morals, but is also flawed and has imperfections. That That's far more interesting, in my opinion. Yeah, and it makes them relatable as well, right? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, because that's the thing about the kind of hero's journey and the chosen one narrative is there's got to be enough in there that you can engage with it as a viewer and you can kind of see yourself in them. Otherwise... What's the point? Yeah, precisely. And Aang in particular is someone who was burdened throughout pretty much the entire show by guilt. You know, yeah. he he ran away from his duty as the Avatar because he was scared, and his entire his entire culture got wiped out as a result of that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, how you, you can you can't even really imagine how much of a burden that's going to be on his mental health. You know, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So that makes so much sense. So that's really cool. All right. So that's like, there's more for me to follow up on after this. Are there any other spin-off shows? Um, yeah, there's a there's some comics by Eugene Lun Yang who does these graphic novels that take place uh right after Avatar Last Airbender finishes. There's a couple of interesting stories in there, which I I'm not gonna go into too much detail about them because some of them are kind of spoilery, but okay. they're quite but yeah, they're quite fun sort of additions and that you know you don't necessarily need them to appreciate the show but if that's your kind of thing and you like like having little additions they're quite nice as well Mm, okay and you uh, you also have this uh at the moment this running novel series by fce 
he's currently writing books based on past avatars. So you mentioned that one episode you're up to where with the Kyoshi Warriors. Mm. So he's done a couple of books based on Avatar Kyoshi, who was the Avatar two generations before Aang was. Ah, okay, that's cool. I could, yeah, I could see that. I could see this sort of has potential for a lot of world building and history and stuff like that, which would be really cool to get into, I imagine. Yeah, definitely. And that's sort of one of the fun things about this particular show was that if writing fan fiction is your kind of thing, mm. then there is quite a lot you can do with this setup because there's a infinite number of avatars you can work with, even if you just make up your own. Like, there's currently, mm. there's currently this fan-made project going on called The Legend of Genji that's set after Korra, and only one episode has come out so far, but it's really intriguing what they're doing with it as well. Right, okay. This is a fan-made uh, show, is it? Uh, yeah, it's got no relation to... It's got no attachments or involvement with Nickelodeon, but yeah, it's just a bunch of fans on the internet who've come together and said, let's make this. But as I say, one episode, it's really quite impressive what they've done with it, in my opinion. Yeah. I'm just having a quick look at it here. Wow. Okay. That's really cool. I love this. I absolutely love when fans get behind something like this and create. I think that's amazing. Yeah, like this, that that side of the fandom where people get together over a project and sort of share their creativity, that side of fandom, you know, say what you will about the other sides of the fandom mm. that can, are a bit more toxic, but that side of the fandom is just fantastic for me. Yeah, and it's free apparently as well. I've got a website here. People, you can read it if you want to. I'm going to put this in the show notes. I think that's really cool. Yeah, no, it's, I think there's even some episodes, they've split the first episode into sort of five YouTube videos of that's your preference as well. Wow, awesome. All right, well, there's loads for people to check out then on the back of that. I hope this uh, picks up a bit more and, and keeps going because that's really cool. I know, it's a, it's a lot of fun to see what they do with it. Yeah, and it, it seems then from there, there's obviously a a much nicer side of the fandom then that you can tap into. Yeah, because, and certainly, I think like all fra like all sort of shows or franchises, be it Star Wars or Rick and Morty, Avatar, yeah. it's it certainly does have some of its toxic fans out there, definitely, like, look no further mm -hmm. than some of the co comments about Legend of Korra to see some of that, right. but, but the you know, the good, passionate, you know, fun-loving fans, you know, they outweigh the toxic ones so, so much. That's good. I love to hear that, yeah, because there's nothing more frustrating as i said than when you keep meeting up gatekeepers and and people like that like i get it i understand the desire to protect what you you know love and, and all the rest of it but if it ends up putting people off as you say that it's you, you you're only harming the thing that you love you know it's, it's literally a stranglehold isn't it yeah and particularly in something like avatar mm. where one of its key lessons is that anybody is capable of change, anybody is capable of being a good person. Right. It kind of, when you gatekeep it and say, no, you could, you don't appreciate like I do, you're kind of missing the point of the show when you do that. Yes, yeah, that's, uh, that's a very common trope, unfortunately, amongst uh, gatekeepers. But there you go. Um, I'm just curious, Callum, is there anything else you sort of want to bring up with Avatar or something you want to highlight about the show? Um. So for me... I think it's how human. I think we talked about this a little bit, but it's how mm -hmm. I would say it's how humanistic the characters are and how relatable they are. But I also want to talk a little bit 
actually, we did talk a little bit about the creativity of the different bending styles and stuff earlier. Mm. But I, I do want to mention just how sort of human these characters are. Like, yeah. you know, they are, obviously they are archetypes. Aang's very classic hero's journey. Zuko is a classic sort of anti-hero type. But but no, they do just feel, whether it's the voice acting or the way they're written, there's something about these characters, even though they're like, you know, walking, talking drawings that just feel really human to me. Right. Okay. And I guess what it comes back to what we were saying earlier then about sort of the flawed nature of some of them or how they all have to grow in their own ways, right? Despite being really powerful, some of them. Yeah, precisely. Like even though these, you know, even though some of them could probably move entire continents if they really put their minds to it, you know, you know, they're they're not infallible. You know, they have insecurities, they have faults, they even have negative tendencies at times. But mm. it's the but it's the fact that you still sort of see where they're coming from. You still understand their plights, their struggles, what it is that motivates them to do what they do. Even someone like Azula, who's maybe the closest thing to just a straight up bad guy in the show, even she has interesting dimensions to her, like. A lot of mum issues is how I'll describe it. Right, okay. That, that I guess in her quest, she ends up just, be- I guess, in her fe- needs to have attention and her need to be loved and accepted and I would say feared more than anything else, she ends up becoming just another version of her dad in, in her attempt to be feared and respected. Wow, okay. That's really cool. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. I love, I love stuff like this. I love character-driven narratives that get you to really think about the nature of them and, and analyze it. And again, to make that in a kid's show, <laughs> that's just awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess another thing I I want to bring up quickly as well, because crea- we mentioned creativity on sort of the bending styles and stuff, but also creativity on the general aesthetic of the world, both the landscapes mm. and the and the animals who yes. occupy this world. Yes. yes, like you might have noticed early from the episode you've seen, not just uh, the weird otter-looking penguins, yeah. but <laughs> also also the giant buffalo that can fly. I love that. Yeah, really, really cool stuff. Yeah, so that's a uh, upper the sky bison. It's an interesting, mm. I suppose, bit of. I guess philosophy or lore, I suppose is the better word to use, mm. is that every avatar seems to have an animal guide in their past lives. So you have Aang who has Appa, the this flying bison. Yet Korra has a polar bear dog that she calls Naga. And then Roku, the guy before Aang, has a dragon. You know, everybody's got like a different animal that's sort of their spirit guide. Yeah, that's awesome. Again, why not? Why not just create these really cool characters and like you say, animals and, and backgrounds. and Yeah, there's loads of stuff like that. I've even noticed, I was watching an episode today, so the last one I watched was, it was one, I can't remember the name of it, but he um, they go to visit this guy, in, uh, and he thinks he's like an earth bender, and he's kind of like this mad king, but he was friends with, uh, friends with Aang back in the day, and it's a really fun and bizarre episode, but I loved all the world building in that, in that the way that the earthbenders use their abilities and how they you know have these giant slides everywhere or like even his fighting style and just all this really like neat little world building and touches that they seem to put in yeah and he ha- he has his own animal which 
even after 12 or 13 rewatches of the show, mm. I still don't quite know what it is. Yeah, it's like I couldn't weird... work out what that was. <laughs> it's like a weird sort of bunny bull dog thing. Yeah. It's really bizarre. Very odd. But again, it's it's just fun. I just thought these really cool creative touches that they've just thrown in. Yeah, there's there's tons of hybridized animals all throughout the show. Like platypus bear comes up a lot. Ostrich horses come up a lot. Mm. And it's actually one of my favorite sort of odd throwaway moments in the show yeah. is that they they visit this one character and they say, oh, look, he's having a celebration for his bear. What do you mean? Like an ostrich bear or a platypus bear? No, just a bear. <laughs> this place is <laughs> and they, they think that's weird, you know? Yeah, <laughs> that's great. I know it's it's again just tra- trademark great. It's not always funny, but when it is, it's really funny. Yeah, yeah. As you say, it's I, I enjoy a lot of the gags and the, the simple humor in it. It's again aimed at children, but in a way that's just fun. I think and, and enjoyable. Yeah, no, in a way that I would say engages children at their level, yes. but also but also doesn't talk down to no, them, which I no. feel a, which I feel a lot of shows do sort of have a habit of doing, unfortunately, mm. as a way to sort of become a bit more marketable. But the fact that it engages kids at their level and in some ways possibly even challenges them to think a little more and to some extent as well, mm. I think that's probably a big reason why it's got such a passionate adult following as well as a kid following. Yeah, totally. I could see this being a kind of show that, like, as you say, maybe you discover it at a younger age and then you come back to it older at rewatches or if you're like us you know you're a bit older in life and you start watching it and you go no there's some really cool stuff in here that i can get on board with as well it's sort of appeals to all different people at all different ranges which that's genuinely really impressive yeah for sure like you know my my dad still talks about introducing star wars to me and my brother when we were kids and if if i'm ever lucky enough to have kids one day i can't wait to introduce this show to them personally for yeah. that exact for that exact same reaction you know totally yeah i can see this as being something that i think a lot of people would really enjoy and if you're listening and you've not seen it well thank you for listening and go check it <laughs> out i guess cuz currently it's all on netflix right or or a prime i think i see as well uh yeah you can find it in a bunch of places there's like box sets are pretty common to find yeah. but if you're not a if you're not a physical media kind of person they are all available on netflix at the moment uh if no you are a bit more masochistic and you want to check out the movie i'm not sure where you would find that yeah uh that is on netflix because that's where i'm currently watching the series and it came up as a recommendation i mean i think yeah before we close out you might as well address the elephant in the room that is the m night Shyamalan movie i mean what what do you have to say about that um i mean apart from don't it's watch one it. of the, <laughs> i mean yeah apart from that it's one of those things like i particularly as i've I've, I mean, I like to think I've matured a bit more as a film critic now, but so I don't really like talking in a negative way for long periods of time. Okay. And but yeah, I will be honest. This and even as someone who actually quite likes what M Night Shyamalan does most of the time, this this is one of my least favorite films. I'm not gonna lie. Like mm. it's it's not. It, don't get me wrong. It's not like morally repugnant or anything like that. You know, it's certainly not a garbage pale kids or i spit on your grave or anything like that right. it's just a bad a- it's just a bad adaptation yeah but with but with that said it's it's a really bad adaptation mm. it's 
it's the kind of thing where they tried to take the entire story of book one and try to cram it into 90 minutes and yeah. as you've sort of probably you could probably tell for yourself that just doesn't really do it justice yeah it's always the thing isn't it i think adapting adapting pretty much anything long form to movie is tricky because as you say you've got to squash it down into a, a few hours at, at most um and yeah, I think the, the impression I got just from watching some some YouTube videos and reviews on it was that it kind of fundamentally misunderstood the core characters and sort of the point of the show and some of the things that we've been talking about, about that these characters you know, have all these flaws, but they're also all on their own journeys and they sort of, they're fundamentally likable. Whereas I get the impression from the movie that they're just not, it's very dry and bland and it takes something that is so sort of grand in its ideas and its world building and just kind of reduces it to something that's just kind of very dull to watch. Yeah, just very sort of cookie cutter, yeah, I would say. Which is, and which is a real shame, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And it's funny because I'm I'm not one of those people who's like, you know, no, the show's perfect, don't touch it. Like, even though I've just spent, you know, 70 minutes talking about how perfect <laughs> the show is. But it's, you know, I actually do think like, a cinematic version of the story could work, but sure. I think if you were if you were going to do it, you'd probably have to do the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings thing, you know, really take your time with it, I feel. Yeah, exactly. That's it. Yeah. No, I agree. You, you can adapt, I would argue, most things, but you just have to have the right approach. And I think, yeah, Lord of the Rings is a great example. Personally, I'm a huge fan of what um, Denny Villeneuve did with Dune, splitting it up into two parts genius you know and there's stuff like that um there's, there's loads and loads of examples but i think the key to a lot of that is those people those filmmakers are fans of the source material and they want to do it justice you know that's one of the key takeaway yeah precisely and one of my favorite things about villeneuve's dune you know mm. is that even though yes it technically is half a story put in a film if you take it, if you take it as a journey from uh, Paul's journey from boy to man, it actually yeah. is quite complete. I feel. Yeah, and it and it's the kind of narrative place in the story that makes so much sense to stop it there because if you're not familiar with it, where the book goes from there gets really weird, and you kind of need a breather and you need all of that exposition leading up to it. So yeah, it's it's there's loads of examples as we say of of books and and shows and stuff like that, that do get adapted and adapted well i think it just needs the right hand on the wheel and you know not like you say not to be too disparaging but i don't think Shyamalan was the right person to to do it it seems but there you go these things happen who knows maybe we'll get another version at some some point down the line yeah precisely and you know even though i did just say i really don't like his film Shyamalan is still a great director yeah. but as you say he just he just wasn't the right choice for the source material. Mm. And it's interesting you mention other adaptations because mm. they are currently working on a live-action Netflix adaptation of the show as we speak. Really? Yeah, no, it's uh, live-action hour-long episodes. Mm. And then from what, I from what I understand, it is a remake. And I'm on the one hand, I'm kind of of two minds of it. On mm. the one hand, if it is uh, just a shot-for-shot -shot remake, then a part of me is saying, well, what is this teaching us that the original show didn't already mm. but at the same time the fact that they have 
from what I understand, they have got quite a bit of budget behind it. They have really good ethical, uh, ethic, ethnic casting of every character. Right. So, so I'm very much of the mind of, okay, let's see how this goes. I'm going to give it a fair shot when it comes out. I think that's a good call. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think sometimes these things can work. Like you said, worst case scenario, if it's not that great, we've still got the originals and you can go back to them. Aye, precisely. You know, the animated one isn't going anywhere regardless of the new one's quality. Exactly, yeah. So I guess on that note, yeah, um, is there anything else you wanted to, to cover? I guess just to reinforce how much I absolutely love the show, you know, it's, uh, I don't know, for for me, and maybe even for folk of our generation or younger, this very much feels like my Star Wars or my Lord of the Rings. And this is coming from someone mm -hmm. who loves both of those properties very much. There's just right. th there's just something about the way it presents its story, the way it treats its characters, the way it engages with its audience, both in terms of creativity, visuals, themes, even just humor. There's something about it that, you know, every time I come back to it, I feel like I'm watching it again for the first time. And I think... I think any media that does that is just any media that does that really is something special, isn't it? It really is. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. So, just want to say thank you so much, Callum, for coming on and and sharing this amazing topic. Uh, as I said, I'm I'm enjoying checking it out already, and, and got a lot more to catch up on yet. But I know it's going to be worth it. So, I guess to take us home, then where can the good people find you and all your creative works and whatever you do? <laughs> Right, so currently I am a master's student at the University of Glasgow studying film and nice. television studies. <laughs> and as of what as of when we're recording this, I'm in the last couple of weeks of writing my thesis. So <laughs> I'm very busy at the moment. But when when I'm not swamped with scholarship, I am I am a I'm a film reviewer for places like Flick Feast and In Their Own League. And so my Twitter handle Callum underscore H underscore Cooper is where you'll find me sharing most of my work. But you can also find me, and I believe uh, Simon Whitlock mm -hmm. of Taskmaster mm -hmm. fame brought this up as well. But I also co-host a podcast with him called Little Women yep. in Black Thunderpants, which I which I, I know <laughs> he went into detail on about yeah, on his own yeah. episode. Well, again, I think it's a, it's a great podcast, um, a really cool concept as well, like lovely to celebrate some actors, you know, who I think deserve a little bit of recognition for their work kind of post Harry Potter, you know, post a big franchise like that. So awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I, I can't take credit for the name or the concept. That was very much Simon's baby. But <laughs> but yeah, no, there are some terrific films that they've done outside of Harry Potter, you know, just mm. off the top of my head. You've got Little Women, mm. you've got The Perks of Being a Wallflower, you've got you know, Thunderpants, which I think is unironically a great film, personally. Wow, okay. But, but yeah, no, it's a lot of fun, and we're always we're always looking for guests for the last few films we've got to cover, so you'd be welcome any time if you're interested, Arlene. Mm, I'll have to check that out, yeah. That's really cool. All right, Callum, well, listen, thank you so much, and thank you for taking time out of your very busy schedule, uh, in that case, and all that's left to say is just, yeah, thanks very much. And I'll make sure to put links in the show notes for everyone to go and find you and, and all of your podcasts and writing. Yeah, well, thank you so much. It's been such a blast being on here. Thanks so much. Uh, my pleasure. And there we have it. Thank you so much to Callum for coming onto the podcast and sharing your love of this incredible animated series. As I said in the episode, I've been making my way through it and I'm absolutely 
loving it. It is available on Netflix here in the UK as well as Amazon Prime. And there are box sets available, as Callum said. So wherever you are in the world, wherever you're listening to this, make sure you track this show down and give it a watch because it is well worth your time. And something else that is well worth your time is, of course, the podcast that Callum is a part of. Little Women in Black Thunderpants is a wonderful podcast, not only just the title, but the concept of exploring the creative works of some very well-known childhood actors and the incredible things that they're doing nowadays is well worth listening to. That is co-hosted by a previous guest of this podcast, Simon Whitlock, and all the details can be found in the show notes of this episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please make sure you share it with somebody. I really don't mind how you do that, whether it's word of mouth, email, social media, dropping notes off your flying bison, however you choose to do it, it really goes a long way to helping this podcast find a new audience and continue to grow, which in turn helps me to attract more guests to this podcast with even more interesting topics. So it's a win-win for everybody. So again, make sure that you recommend this episode to anyone and everyone that you think would find it interesting. If you've been enjoying the podcast for a little while and you want to support me, then there are a couple of key ways of doing so. First and foremost is to leave a lovely five-star review on your favorite podcatcher. I believe Apple and Podchaser allow you to do that. There may be other platforms as well. And if there are, and you've been kind enough to do so, then please let me know because I would love to thank you on the next episode of the podcast. It really is the least that I can do. And if you would like to contribute to the podcast financially, then there are a few ways of doing that. You can donate directly to me via the coffee donations page, which is linked in the show notes. Any and all support that you can give will obviously be greatly appreciated and will go a long way to help with the recurring costs of keeping this podcast going. Or you can get yourself an amazing piece of merchandise featuring the wonderful artwork designed by Alex. His details are also linked in the show notes, by the way, if you're interested in some graphic design. But yes, you can find that featured in the Tee Public store and the brand new Red Bubble store for the podcast. Both of those are linked in the show notes. You can go and check it out. If there's anything there that you fancy with the podcast logo on, grab it. Let me know that you've bought it because that will, of course, earn you a shout out on the podcast, much like the reviews, because, hey, you're helping me keep this going. It's the least that I could do. And finally, before I completely sign off for today, I just wanted to let you know that I was invited onto the podcast, Not Just For Kids. It's a wonderful podcast that looks at the films and TV that we grew up with and is hosted by a previous guest of this show, Russell Bailey. Russell was kind enough to come onto the podcast a few times and he's returned the favor. I'm on to talk about How to Train Your Dragon, which is a wonderful trilogy of movies and the conversation was just delightful. So make sure you keep an eye out for that. It should be out in the same week that this episode comes out. And that's it from me. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode from a returning guest of the podcast, one that features an incredible television series. So make sure that you are subscribed, followed, whatever it is you have to do so that you do not miss out on that episode. So until next time, take care, have a great week, and I'll see you then. <laughs>